0: Welcome to the Christian Mysticism Podcast, where we explore the fascinating history of Christian mysticism from the early days of the church until today. I'm Alberto de la Cruz, and I'm joined by my co-host, Dr. Carlos Ayer, the T. Lawrence Riggs Professor of History and Religious Studies at Yale University. How are you doing, Carlos? I'm doing
1: fine. How are you?
0: I'm doing good. Yeah. Well. It's, uh, this episode is dropping in September, so I imagine you've already started classes.
1: Yes, we started this past week, and it's it's wonderful. It's wonderful to go back. Even as wonderful as it is to be off teaching for the summer, uh, starting a new term is always very exciting. You meet new people. You meet new students. And I'm really excited about this term. I'm teaching a brand new course, History of the Supernatural, from antiquity to modernity. So from the first century to the present how the supernatural has been uh, conceived of throughout these 20 centuries in Western civilization.
0: Yeah, that sounds like an exciting topic, and I hope you save some for the podcast for a future episode.
1: (laughs) Yes, most definitely, yes.
0: But this episode, I know we have someone very exciting to talk about.
1: Oh, yes, it's uh, Hildegard of Bingen, who lived between 1098 and 1179. So yeah, she had a long, very full, very productive life. So she's also um, fully in. The, if, when you're born in in, in a ninety eight, you really your life is in the following century. So she's twelfth um, century, and she actually corresponded uh, with Bernard of Clairvaux. They knew each other through letters. She was not only very productive, but she was very productive in many areas. She was uh, a nun, of course. She was, but she ended up being an abbess, and she established a separate monastery from the one that she entered. She moved with some nuns, where, and then she was abbess at Bingen, which is in in the Rhine River Valley. She was also a poet, a composer, a dramatist, a philosopher, a botanist, and a medical writer and practitioner. In addition to being a visionary mystic, and uh, her music is beautiful, absolutely beautiful. And from the very start, I'd like to encourage our listeners to check out Hildegard von Bingen's music, which is available on the internet, especially on YouTube. There are various really good collections of, of her songs performed by incredibly talented musicians. And we're going to provide on the website for this podcast, uh, links that you can follow to listen to her music.
0: Yes, we're going to be posting some links in the show notes that our listeners can, can go to and get a sample of what we're talking about. Obviously, Hildegard was a very accomplished woman, but you mentioned something there, and I and I'm hoping you can give us a little bit more of explanation. What exactly is a visionary mystic?
1: A visionary mystic, and keep in mind, all of these are distinctions made by Scholars later on. She didn't go around telling people, oh, I'm a visionary mystic. Well, actually, most mystics don't go around saying to everyone, hey, by the way, you know I'm a mystic. That's actually uh, most often a pretty bad sign of somebody going in the wrong direction. But anyway, a visionary mystic is someone who has visions. There are various kinds of mystics. Scholars subdivide them. Some have lots of visions, as did Hildegard, Julian of Norwich, for instance, her text, the showings, are based on a series of visions that she had when she was young. Uh, Hildegard Bingens is is the same. Her written texts, her music, her poems, and everything else is an attempt to delve into the meaning of the visions that she had. And we'll have plenty of time throughout this podcast to delve deeply into what, what these visions were. The incredible thing about her, and what makes it even harder to explain her in a audio podcast, is that in addition to her music, there are illustrations, drawings of her visions, which scholars are not quite sure who drew them, but there's a, a kind of tacit agreement that she had a hand in helping others create these Incredible images, absolutely incredible. And we'll be posting links that will lead you straight, not just to the images, which are incredible, but also to the texts that accompany them. There are some websites that are just uh, wonderful that way. You get the text, and then you get the images. And, And most of the text is an explanation of the meaning of the visions that she had.
0: Now, I know from our previous episodes that Hildegard is not the first to see visions that have been put to paper. Uh, I remember in our last episode talking about St. John of the Cross, how he drew a schematic or, or yes. a, dra- a drawing and, of, a, of a building.
1: And he also, there's a very famous painting, actually, by Salvador Dali, you know, 20th century Catalan artist, which is his version Of a drawing made by John of the Cross himself, of a vision he had of Christ on the cross. And what is so unusual about this is that in the vision, St. John is above the cross, looking down, as if, you know, it's a view from the sky or from heaven. But, you know, the the image that he drew is something that would have put whoever was having this vision uh, about maybe 10 feet above Christ. And Dolly's painting, which you can also check out on the internet, is very, very close to Saint John's drawing, except Dolly was really an artist. <laughs> so it's it's a much better depiction artistically, stylistically, than
0: the very crude drawing by John of the Cross. So these being a visionary mystic isn't really unique to Saint Hildegard. Oh no,
1: but um what is unique is the fact that so many of her visions were then turned into beautiful artwork and uh, there's actually a, a, there, there are two manuscript versions that contain the text and the images of course the original ones because you know back then there's no, no way of copying images except to redraw them and and usually these uh, medieval books that contain material are known as codex codexes is the plural or a codex. And there's one, the Rupertsburg Codex, which contains her book, Scivias. And Scivias in Latin means know the way. And another one that has her other major text, the Book of Divine Works, the Liber Divinorum Operum. But here's the uh, very, very unusual circumstance about these codexes. The Rupertsburg Codex, was later copied by some nuns and copied beautifully and as exactly as one can copy. And then during World War II, where in Germany, the Rupertsburg Codex was moved to what those who moved it thought was a very safe place. They moved it to the city of Dresden in Germany, because Dresden had no military targets whatsoever or anything vaguely connected to the military, so they thought Allies are not going to bomb Dresden. But of course they did. They bombed Dresden around Valentine's Day, 1945. You know, this is like mid February 1945. Two months later, the war ends, but the Allies dropped so many incendiary bombs on Dresden that a huge firestorm, like the one that just occurred in Maui, in Hawaii, a firestorm that creates a fire hurricane and thousands and thousands of of people died but the codex was lost although some people think that the russians who were the ones who got the dresden first after this horrible bombing might have taken it somewhere and that it could still exist somewhere but the fact that it had been copied before by nuns means we have we have a copy that's why we have the images and after photography was invented of course you know you can compare the copy with the original Right. We have photos of both and it, it, they're just beautiful. I have to urge our listeners, please, please look up the link we're going to provide so that you can see the beauty of these. The other one, the um, Book of Divine Works, the original manuscript is in Lucca, Italy. And one might ask, uh, how did it go from Germany to Italy? Well, you know, these are monastics and things get moved around, but that one is intact.
0: So, you mentioned she also had descriptions for these images. Mm-hmm.
1: Yes, both of these, these texts, Scivias, S C I V I A S, and the other one, the Book of Divine Works. The text is mostly a, a commentary on the image, on, on different parts of the image, and very detailed descriptions. And think of these images, you know, since, you know, we're talking about them now, but they are biblical parallels, both in the Hebrew Bible and in the New Testament. And perhaps the best-known biblical parallel for this for Christians is the book of Revelation, final book in the New Testament, where the entire book is a description of the visions had by tradition attributes it to John the Evangelist. Most scholars think that someone else wrote this, not John the Apostle. But they gave it the name. Book of Revelation came to be associated with John. And older copies of, of the Bible the title is, of course, the Apocalypse of John or John's Book of the Apocalypse. Most current Bibles now in English give it the title Book of Revelation. But that's what her texts look like, you know, visually and, and what the text actually is. Very, very similar to the Book of Revelation.
0: So let me ask you, when did St. Hildegard begin having her visions? Because if I recall from a previous episode on Maria de Agreda, her vision started at a very early age.
1: Oh, yes. And there's no established pattern in the case of Maria de Agreda and several other mystics. You know, it begins very early in life. Uh, when we get to Catherine of Siena, that's someone else who, well, she, she died young. She died when she was in her 30s. And actually, in the case of Hildegard, as in the case of Teresa Avila, visions began in middle age, when they were in their 40s. She tells us that at the age of 42 years and seven months, she's that precise, she experienced a a very sudden and powerful, as she viewed it, a calling as a prophet. And I'm going to quote now from her. Heaven was opened. And a fiery light of exceeding brilliance came and permeated my whole brain and inflamed my whole heart and my whole chest. And she claimed that this vision gave her a miraculous ability to interpret the Bible. And she called this incredible light of exceeding brilliance that her name for it was the living light, the lux vivens, the living light. And her writing uh, then began in middle age, at age 42 and 7 months. And at the age of 77, later in life, she explained what went on in her life and what these texts actually do. She said, and I'm quoting, The words I speak are not my own, nor any human beings. I merely report those things I received in a supernatural vision. All right? So the visions are not just visual. They're not just images. She also, There are also words that accompany them. And I'm going to keep reading from her so our listeners get a, a taste of how she herself explained what was going on. She said, my seeing, hearing, and knowing are simultaneous so that I learn and know at the same instant, but I have no knowledge of anything That I don't see there because I am unlearned. Just like Teresa of Avila, you know, she stresses the fact that she's just a simple woman. It's very disarming, isn't it? Oh, I'm just a simple woman, but hey, I'm having these visions. (laughs) But she has to be careful. She has to be careful that she doesn't seem too proud of her special status. So, anyway, she said, hearing and seeing are simultaneous. The things That I write are those that I see and hear in my vision with no words of my own added. And these are expressed in unpolished Latin, for that's the way that I hear them in my vision. So she's hearing Latin, but it's not learned scholarly Latin. And then she adds, I'm not taught in the vision to write the way the philosophers do. Moreover, the words I see and hear in the vision are not like the words of human speech, but are like a blazing flame and a cloud that moves through clear air. I can by no means grasp the form of this light any more than I could stare fully into the sun. And this is, I think, a very remarkable explanation of
0: something that's beyond normal cognition. Can you share some of these visions with us? Oh yeah, sure. Some, since she's getting this understanding, as she, as you mentioned earlier, that mm-hmm. she was given the ability to to understand things, maybe we can learn something. Yeah, one such
1: example would be her vision of the Trinity. Which, if if our listeners look up the images, find them, they'll be able to see this for themselves. This is her vision of the Trinity. I saw bright light, and in this light. The figure of a man, the color of a sapphire, blue, parentheses, blue. She says sapphire. So if sapphires are blue. The color of sapphire, which was all blazing with a gentle glowing fire. And that bright light bathed the whole of the glowing fire. And the glowing fire bathed the bright light. And the bright light and the glowing fire poured over the whole human figure, so that the three were one light and one power of potential. So, if that's all we had, that would be very difficult to interpret.
0: It sounds like a very intense and beautiful image, but really does little to explain. Yeah, well, and not (laughs) only that,
1: it's also difficult to picture it in one's mind, at least for me, because, you know, if I put, the actual image side by side with this, then I can say, oh, this is what she's talking about. But from the words alone, I don't get an idea. I can't. But anyway, she goes on, of course, to explain what this means in great detail. And she says, and these are her words, and we'll take it slowly. Bright light represents God the Father. And the bright light, remember, is white in the illustration the sapphire figure in the center represents god the Son, the incarnate one so picture this all right picture uh because this is the the broad outlines of this image it's a circle many of her visions have circles because you know circle being perfect considered perfect figure in classical geometry circles also have no beginning or end they're infinite Yes. So, picture a circle, mostly red, with a blue figure right in the center. So, the bright light represents God the Father. The sapphire figure in the center represents God the Son. The incarnate one, go back to that, while the glowing fire represents the Holy Spirit. And the glowing fire, the color of it in the illustration, is gold. And then she continues. She continues after decoding these three elements, she gives a very precise and also theologically correct exposition of the Holy Trinity. She has read scholarly theology, scholastic theology. She's read other types of theology too. So, anyway, she stresses the fact that the three persons of the Trinity are inseparable. So she says, And I quote now from her, The Father is not without the Son, nor the Son without the Father, nor the Father and the Son without the Holy Spirit, nor the Holy Spirit without them. Trinity is inseparable. They are, quote, an inseparable divine majesty. And then she goes on to use three analogies to explain the Trinity. First, she compares the Trinity to three qualities of a stone. cool dampness is the first one, solidity, second, and sparkling fire, the third. There, see, I begin to get a little lost, and most readers would get lost here. What God, Wait a minute. Cool, dampness, solidity, and then sparkling fire? Fire is a different element. <laughs> and in a literal image, I would picture perhaps some lava that is cooling, <laughs> as the sparkling fire, but no, that's not what she means. I'll go on. Notice, I'll pause here for a second, all the paradoxes embodied in these analogies, because the Trinity itself is a paradox. So let's continue. What's the second analogy she uses? Flame, a brilliant light, a red power, and fiery heat. And the third analogy is three aspects of human words, sound, meaning, and breath. And she has to be very careful writing this down, explaining. I mean, you explain this. If she just left the vision alone, as I read here, she can't get into any trouble, theologically. But uh, in explaining the Trinity via analogies, oh boy, this she's, she's treading on thin ice here. This is very dangerous. So she's, she's very careful. Uh, she doesn't want to overplay the distinctions, and she doesn't want to overplay the unity. She has to be very careful and maintain this paradox that the three are one, and the one is three. But unity of essence is the key. She wants to explain that the three and one are, in fact, God. Well, so try to wrap your head around that. Of course, it's impossible. But the central figure, the Son, which is depicted as a, you know, a human, a man, is key to that vision. Because the Father and the Holy Spirit are portrayed in non-figural, that is, non-imagistic manner. So the Father and the Holy Spirit are depicted in an abstract way, whereas the Son is depicted quite clearly as a human being. And that is a very, very fundamental meaning conveyed by this vision to her. The insight that God, the Son, the second person of the Trinity, was a human being, became a human being, is still a human being. And that's what she's stressing. You know, the sun is very luminous, very divine, but also fully human. Uh, so that's, that's only one of her, her visions, but this is how they all go.
0: When you go back to the vision that you described earlier, which involved a bathing light, a glowing fire, but then a blue sapphire man in the center of it all, representing, as she said, Jesus Christ, the light and the glowing fire are almost nondescript. You you can't really see a person, a thing in it other than mm-hmm. the light, but... The blue sapphire man, you see the actual man. Mm-hmm. And at least that's what I get from that that vision where God and the Holy Spirit cannot really be described, but Jesus Christ can.
1: Oh yeah. And and it's physical, it's material. This body is material. And according to you know Christian, Orthodox Christian teaching, that body's still there in heaven. When he rose from the dead, he rose with a real body, a body that had different characteristics from a normal human body because he could suddenly appear even though the doors were locked. But at the very same time, that body there, I forget what gospel this is in, which of the four, is that after he's resurrected, he's cooked fish for the apostles and actually joins them eating fish. So it's a different kind of body, but yeah. Uh, And the thing about this vision of Hildegard's is that this description of hers about the light, fire, and the man, what do you get from that? Well, that's open to interpretation. But if you look at the image alone, you will have no clue what that's about. (laughs) (laughs) But you put the two together, and then you can say, ah, look at this, right? Figural representations are key elements of many religions. And let's not forget how symbols convey information and how symbols can teach, especially complicated symbols of the sort that she is describing. It's another way of doing theology. In her case, doing theology based on an experience that she has had, which is not irrational, right? But it transcends reason because symbols teach you truths. At a different, much deeper level than discursive reasoning, which is why, it, you know, I'm not making much of a leap here, but why do so many people on earth get so upset when the flag of their nation is desecrated? Because, you know, flags are just flags, they're just symbols, right? But they're invested with deep meaning, not just about abstractions, but about real things like, you know, my country. It's not an abstraction. It's my country. You It's this piece of earth here. And let's say we're talking about the flag of a very small state like Andorra or Liechtenstein. (laughs) It doesn't have to be a big state. Someone might get very, very upset if someone, either from their own country or another country, desecrates their
0: flag. And that symbolism works in the other direction as well, where a specific symbol, for instance, the swastika or... I know something that upsets people like yourself and and me is you know the hammer and sickle.
1: Oh my God! Don't show me a hammer and sickle.
0: That uh, just symbols that just bring up right a lot of negative feelings because of the tens of millions of people who suffered under those symbols.
1: That's right. Yes. And isn't it interesting though that we're talking about twentieth century symbols, and you would think with all the technological advances that had taken place up to that time, early 20th century, that these symbols would be unnecessary. You could just reason with people, couldn't you? But no, you need symbols. And boy, the Nazis, they revived an ancient symbol. The swastika is ancient. And actually, if you go to India, you find it on, on many of the older temples, carved in stone. Right? They thought they were resurrecting some ancient Aryan, A-R-Y-A-N, ancient Aryan symbol. But they turned it into something, you know, not just semi-divine, but actually they turned their ideology into a, a religion with the Führer and the Reich or the Empire at its very center. Symbols carry a lot of weight. The communists uh, invented their s- symbol by picking a farming implement, the sickle, and the hammer for industry. That's a new symbol that got people all fired up. But Hildegard's images, which are based on her visions, her visions themselves too then, are ways of entering the mysterious, the paradoxical, which lies at at the very center of Christian belief.
0: Now, what would you say is the core message that St. Hildegard's Visions and Symbols, or Visions of Symbols, had. Yeah. Before
1: I I um I delve into that question, that very good question you just asked, I'd like to add for our listeners that we are ignoring her music, which is
0: also based on her visions. Well, I wanted to leave the music for last, because I know that's yeah. a big part right. of her.
1: Right. But keep in mind, it's not just the illustrations, the music. The core message is the uh, the whole idea, which is ancient, of the microcosm and the macrocosm, uh, which has also became extremely central to Renaissance culture later in the fifteenth and sixteenth century. It's an ancient idea that the entire universe is full of reflections, and that the small bits and pieces of the universe are a reflection of the whole. That's what microcosm is, the small bits and pieces. Let's say even a flea, right? A flea or a microscopic virus. How many of our listeners saw depictions of the COVID virus back in 2020, right? So let's stick with that. Even something as nasty as the COVID virus, a sphere full of spikes, right? Ah, that's a reflection of the entire universe. And it's reciprocal then.
0: It also became a symbol.
1: Yes, it did. <laughs> because it was used repeatedly, repeatedly in any kind of news about COVID. Nine out of ten times you would see this this symbol. But for Hildegard, this microcosm-macrocosm relation, or dialectic, let's call it that, is focused on, on the fact that the cosmos of the human person, and the cosmos of the natural world were linked by an intricate web of reflections and correspondences. And the steam appears repeatedly in her visions, in her writings, in her music. And one of the many illustrations that accompany her visions has a human being at the center, at the center of a circle. And her image there Is very, very similar to an image of human beings later drawn by Leonardo da Vinci in the Renaissance, an image known as the Vitruvian man. And and some of our listeners might have seen it because it shows a very muscular man with his arms extended. And then the arms are represented in different positions. And the legs, too, are represented in different positions, almost as if he's doing jumping jacks. (laughs) She has an image very much like that. And that image, represents visions she had about the way in which humans are linked to the entire cosmos, which means what? It means many, many things. But in my mind, chiefly, it speaks of the relationship between humans as individual beings, humans as a community of individual beings that were all reflections of the same creator. And of course, in her way of understanding things, which is was part of the Hebrew and Christian tradition, the Jewish and Christian tradition, human beings were were the final act in God's creation of the cosmos. He saved the best for last, and then there are also, I should say, you know, here's a, a little footnote, right? It's a little aside. Angels play a very crucial part in her imagery too. Angels have reason like men do, but Angels were created before humans. Humans were the final crowning act of creation. This is how she sees it. Then, of course, comes the biblical story of the Garden of Eden, the fall, and so on and so forth. And summarizing Hildegard in 50 minutes is difficult because then you have to think what am I leaving out? What am I leaving out? Well, so far we haven't even mentioned the Virgin Mary, the mother. Of Jesus, the woman whose body produced Jesus' body. Oh, Mary is very important in all this, too. And Mary is the counterpart of Eve, who gave birth to the human race. Adam and Eve were specific creations of the divine, of God. But then they, he said, be fruitful and multiply, which means what? It means that procreation. That the sexual union of male and female procreation was an essential part of God's plan and a very good thing, which went horribly wrong. And there we get into mysteries again. Well, why did it go wrong? Well, that takes a lot of unpacking. But as you can imagine, people who are very concerned with ecological questions, the ecology and human relationship to the environment and so on, oh they love they love Hildegard. They tend to. I should say they all do. Those who know about her tend to love what she has to say about our relationship with nature. And she was an herbalist. She studied the effect that plants could have on humans. And she was trying to understand how nature can heal, as well as how nature can cause pain and and illness. So it's, uh, it's something that took a long time, because I haven't mentioned this yet, but it took a long time for Hildegard to be recognized for all of these things, all of her accomplishments. And it was uh, beginning in the 19th century, but truly in the the 20th century has been the the high point of the recognition of the significance of Hildegard of Bingen in many different ways. Musicians discovered her, let's say rediscovered. And now, oh, there's so many recordings of Hildegard's music. Uh, I read somewhere, I'm not a musician and I'm not a music historian, But I read somewhere that she was unique in this respect as a musician, that she was one of the very few in her time, in her day and age, who composed music, wrote the notations for the music, and also, let's call it the lyrics, the words. And here's where I'm treading on thin ice, my ignorance of music history, and actually my inability to do music, because I'm congenitally unable to do music. I enjoy it, but I can't do it. But anyway, notation, musical notation that emerged into the kind of notation we now see and recognize as, oh, this is written music. It was fairly recent in the 12th century. It had begun to be invented not long before the 12th century. But she somehow knew how to do it. And she had a gift. Really good musicians just have a gift that no one else has. And that was that was her case. So I stress this again for our listeners listen to hildegard and be
0: amazed so can you share with us some of the musical works that you know give us a description of some of those works that she put together
1: yeah there are there are several collections and on the link that we will provide there'll be a list of what these are and they all have long latin names and they all have Each has its own focus. There are many that that focus on the Virgin Mary, for instance. And the singing of these Latin hymns is, of course, no matter which of her sets of her music one is listening to, one can get the sense. And, And, of course, this is all in Latin, so it requires knowing some Latin to immediately get that deep sense of how theological the lyrics are. And the lyrics are kind of reflections of what she has on her, in her texts, in Skivia's. And the other book, the Book of Divine Works, these are linked to her music and her songs. But, you know, talk about things taking a long time. The music brings this to mind. Here's this woman outshining many men in the 12th century. Then she goes into kind of an obscure place in history, in not just the history of the church, but you the know, history of the world. But within the church, if you ask this as a question, when do you think Hildegard was canonized? When do you think Hildegard was recognized as a saint by the Catholic Church? Oh, you'd get all sorts of answers. Remember, she lived in the 12th century. She was not proclaimed a saint until the year 2012. And this was done I think I laugh every time I think about this. This was done by Pope Benedict XVI, a German pope. (laughs) A German pope was very much an intellectual and a very learned theologian. He recognized, of course, he's not individually responsible for her being canonized. Many people have been pushing for this for many years. But it would be Benedict XVI, a German, who recognized not just her talents but her holiness and her special mystical gifts, and also named her a doctor of the church. She is the fourth woman to be given this title. You know, there there are various male doctors of the church, like you know, Thomas Aquinas, Saint Augustine, Saint Anselm, and so on, and the list is very long. But the very first two women to be pronounced doctors of the church were mystics. Catherine of Siena, and Teresa of Avila. The third to be declared a doctor of the church was this uh, nun who lived a very brief life, but was a mystic, Saint Teresa of Lisieux, 19th century. And the fourth is Hildegard. So she finally got her recognition. For those who are struggling to be recognized, I think Hildegard is, is, now that she's a saint, you can call it, she's the patron saint of people who do wonderful things. And don't get the recognition that they deserve. Is that her official patron? No. I, <laughs> I, let's, I, you know, maybe I should start a campaign to make her the patron saint of unrecognized genius. <laughs> or insufficient. let me put it this way, insufficiently recognized genius or insufficiently appreciated talent. In our case, her talents, of course, natural and supernatural talents, they blend together.
0: I have to admit that over the years, I had never really heard of St. Hildegard, uh, even during when she got canonized by Pope Benedict. I don't remember ever reading about her or hearing about her. So, not that I, am, uh, I have my finger on the pulse of right. Catholic saints, but mm-hmm. by the same token, most of the people we've discussed in, in previous episodes, I at least have heard the name. Yes. And a name like Hildegard, I would have remembered, but. I could I could see how a lot of people have never heard of her, despite her brilliance and mm-hmm. and her incredible talent. Yeah, and I have to say
1: that it is difficult to teach Hildegard, precisely because of this. You know the, the the images and the texts explaining the images. Over the years, you know, of course, I've tried to teach Hildegard, but the students they grow impatient with these texts. Uh, Now, I'm not saying all students grow impatient with these texts, but, you know, students write course reviews at the end. When one has taught a course, the students are asked to submit a review of the course. And one of the questions is, you know, what texts did you like the most and which ones did you like the least? And students uh, over the years struggled with, you know, reading. Not that they don't appreciate her, it's just that they find the texts difficult to read and, and engage with. So now when I, when I get to Hildegard, if she is part of any of the course I'm teaching, I uh, focus on the images. I, I
0: leave it there because, you know, pictures are worth more than a thousand words sometimes. They definitely are, but I would imagine seeing these images that are so difficult to, despite their beauty and despite right. their, the way they challenge what you're thinking or, or your preconceived notions— I would imagine you would at least want to get some commentary from the person who had the vision.
1: Yeah, which is um, why those biblical books that rely on images in the Hebrew Bible, some of the prophets like Ezekiel, especially, who has these visions, you know. Uh, well, whoa, please explain this to me, but there's no explanation in the text. Same thing with the book of Revelation for Christians. This is why they're, uh, they're so powerful. because images suggest so many different things. And the book of Revelation lets the verbal images speak for themselves. And if I can give, oh, I just thought of something, an example of how the invention of the printing press changed the interpretation of biblical images. One reason that Hildegard's images did not, uh, let's put it this way, catch on fire metaphorically, that they became super famous, is that there was no printing press in her day. So you you couldn't reproduce her images. But Book of Revelation, Martin Luther comes along, well, he translates the Bible into German, and it gets published. And then you end up having an illustrated Bible and an illustrated Book of Revelation, which makes available to hundreds of thousands of people, even people who can't read and might have the Bible being read to them by someone else. You see these images of the visions of John, the author of the book of Revelation. These images are there, and they're they're open to interpretation. So the book of Revelation mentions this mysterious evil figure, the whore of Babylon, and a seven-headed dragon. Well, in the earliest editions of Luther's German Bible printed, the image of the whore of Babylon, has a woman sitting on a seven-headed beast. But on the head of the Whore of Babylon, Lucas Cranach, the artist, placed the papal crown. <laughs> so there's a message for you. Look, the Whore of Babylon is the papacy. And so on.
0: A little more symbolism.
1: Yeah, a little, yes, perhaps this is like, you know, beating somebody over the head with a heavy message. Oh, yeah, well, that's that's what the horror of Babylon means.
0: A little too on the nose.
1: Yeah, uh, and um, this is why Book of Revelation, Book of Ezekiel, and Hildegard of Ingen's books open doors and windows to mysteries, but her books, in comparison with Book of Revelation or Book of Ezekiel, she takes you by the hand and tells you exactly what these symbols mean. Because remember that, quote, Uh, I read from her that she says, these are not my words. None of these are my words. These are the words I heard. So it leaves you less room for interpretation.
0: Now, she was around in the 12th century, not too far away from the whole controversy over icons that were very popular, at least in the Eastern Church. Could some of her symbols, were they considered part of the whole Icon class issue?
1: Well, uh, you know, I've never read, I've never run across or read anyone addressing this issue. Maybe somebody has. I just have not seen that. But one very significant point that that relates to your question and would relate to any answer is that when the Byzantine Empire was shaken by controversy over religious images, the eighth century, especially. The resolution was to of this controversy, you know, there were those who said Christians can't have images and destroy and they destroyed them. And then there were those who said, No, images are valuable. The solution was to argue that it is okay to make religious images, because when God became incarnate and took on matter, he divinized all of the material. And then also, of course, you know. It's appropriate to have images and to venerate them because the image itself, an image of Jesus or an image of Mary or an image of any saint, is not that person. But because of the way in which Jesus changed matter, a holy image, a sacred image, is connected to the reality it represents. And it was also decided at this council in the eighth century that stored images to the Orthodox Church that all sacred images should be two dimensional rather than three dimensional so no statues only paintings and you know illustrations and hildegard's images actually if you look at them they look very similar to orthodox sacred images and orthodox church art because of greek settlement in southern italy was part and parcel of some dimensions of catholic culture so Yeah, there could be. But again, here I am just, at this point, I'm guessing.
0: (laughs) I was just wondering, because her images are very powerful and really do tell, you know, even without the commentary, really do state a theological point.
1: Oh, yeah. And they are, well, let me put it this way. Images have long been considered in the Catholic tradition, the books of the poor the books of the illiterate. Images can teach things about what's in the Bible. Images can teach things about the seven virtues, the Ten Commandments, everything that's part of the religion. For those who can't read, and those who are the humble and the poor, who never get to learn how to read. Which was the case until you know basically the 19th century and the 20th century in many places, that if you were a peasant, you, you had very, very slim chance of learning how to read.
0: Well, we're getting to the end of the show, but I, before we go, I wanted to ask you: Did Hildegard's writing, her music, her visions, the physical depictions of her visions—did they ever get her into any trouble or any issues with yes. with the church? No,
1: I have not read anything that mentions this happening or focuses on it. Although, you know what, there are scholars. 20th century and 21st century, who have tried to um, explain away her mysticism. And there was this, I forget his name, but almost 100 years ago, I think it was 1922, published an article in which he attributed all of Hildegard's visions to visual migraines, which are also known as silent migraines. Uh, If our listeners have never encountered visual migraines, well, if you compare An image of a visual migraine to her images, there is barely any relation between them. I've had visual migraines. And when I got my first one, I I thought I was going blind because you see all these lines and squiggles, right? And most visual migraines are nothing but lines and squiggles. There are also visual migraines in which your vision gets turned upside down, and that is truly frightening. There are also scholars. That have tried to argue that Hildegard does not fit the classic definition of a mystic, and that she wasn't a mystic. So there's more again. There's more controversy about her in the 20th, 21st century than in her own time or or shortly thereafter. But the attribution of, of her images to visual migraines is, is just so, to my mind, especially because I've had visual migraines. It's just completely ridiculous.
0: I've had visual migraines as well, and huh. I did not see the <laughs> circles no. with sapphire blue men and and no bathing no. light and comforting fires uh, i just yeah. I just see a flashing little flashing lights that get very annoying after a while and you can look up any book, any
1: kind of you know serious medical book on visual migraines that have illustrations, and there's nothing in there resembling the types of visions depicted in Hildegard's texts.
0: Well, you're always going to have people that are going to try to discredit others that have experienced things that they've never experienced. So unfortunately, that's part of human nature, part of our fallen nature. It seems to be, yeah. But it's been a great episode, very interesting story, and a very interesting woman in St. Hildegard. So what do you have for us for the next episode?
1: Well, let's stay in the Middle Ages, and let's go to another doctor of the church, Catherine of Siena.
0: I've been waiting for that one.
1: Yeah. She's really very, very, very different from Hildegard, but she too saw visions, and it is, uh, well, she was declared a doctor of the church same time as Teresa of Avila, and for good reason. There are many similarities between the two and as a matter of fact we'll get to this next time but Teresa of Avila read The Life or Hagiography The Life of Catherine of Siena was very very influenced by her
0: well we'll see where we can spot the similarities yeah well thank you Carlos and until the next time thank you for listening to the Christian Mysticism Podcast if you have any questions for Dr. Eyre You'll find our email address in the show notes. Just send it over and we'll try to answer it in a future episode. And don't forget to click the subscribe button so you don't miss the next episode of the Christian Mysticism Podcast.